Mathematics reveals its secrets only to those who approach it with pure love for its own beauty. Archimedes The elders of Zion needed their Zion estate, and wouldn't you know it, a second world war had already been offered up on the menu. Both delectable dishes were served directly on schedule. But in order to pull it off, because why waste a good psyop on one meal when you can milk the cow for decades, they decided to add a little alchemy in the mix. Therefore, they called upon the physicist. They called upon the chemist. They called upon high-ranking generals, but mostly, they called upon actors and spook occultists. They called upon one man in particular, who most, if not all of us know, but only by one name, Oppenheimer. If you're already confused, we are talking today about the development of the atomic bomb. For the purposes of this episode, I decided to do a little digging into J. Robert Oppenheimer. The J is for Julius. Also, I checked. Oppenheimer was a Jew. Now you know, and knowing is half the battle. Disclaimer, I am not a physicist. I am not a chemist. I am also not a high-ranking general. I actually failed high school biology in the 90s, but I have an excuse for that. I met a woman in that class who then became my lab partner, and in a few short years, my wife. We're still married. Lucky girl. Actually, she went on to become valid Victorian with a full ride to college and so on. Presently, she is my mealtime research partner, but I'm also just some dude sitting behind a laptop, completely certain of one thing. They're lying about everything. Today, however, we are only focused upon one lie in a globular construct of many, and that is once again the atomic bomb. Before I am through, Yah willing, you will sleep a little more soundly at night because, despite the ending to The Planet of the Apes, nobody has the authority to push a red button and blow the earth up. Once again, we are talking about the Manhattan Project, the Trinity test site, and its relation to alchemy. Before we progress too far ahead, it will undoubtedly benefit you to listen to my last episode on Marie Curie and the death hoax of her husband, Pierre. The material is related. Much of that information has already been established, but will not necessarily be repeated here. No promises either way. Let's begin. If you decide to research the Elders of Zion on your own, and please do, then you will undoubtedly be fact-checked by the Ministry of Truth, wherein the Wikipedia will tell you the protocols of the meetings of the learned Elders of Zion is a fabricated anti-Semitic text purporting to describe a Jewish plan for global domination. Oh dear. The document highlights a series of 24 to 27 meetings held at Basel, Switzerland in 1897, whereupon Jews and Freemasons conspired to erect a post-mud flood world state under their joint control. If we're to assume wiki logic, the protocols is a fabricated document based upon the apparent fact that Russia would not publish it until 1903, a mere six years after their meeting. What our slave masters don't want you to do is connect the dots while you're busy picking their cotton. For example, 
The Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 was perpetrated by the likes of Joseph Stalin and Leon Trotsky, and they were both Ashkenazi Jews. Come to think of it, the Bolshevists were overwhelmingly Jews. In turn, the ruling Bolsheviks quickly declared anti-Semitism a crime punishable by death. Do you see what they did there? They made questioning the official narrative and recognizing the Jews' mastermind in the rise of communism anti-Semitic. The sheer irony here is that the communist Jews weren't even Semitic. Are we dealing with the same children who made up one of the 12 tribes of Israel? No, we are not. We are dealing with the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Revelation 2.9 The word Ashkenazi signifies them as German and in no way corresponds with the sons of Jacob. You have just witnessed the sleight of hand. Now you know how the bunny is pulled out of the hat. In 1903, a Russian publication was simply attempting to warn the world. Also, even according to the official narrative, the first Zionist Congress met in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. Wink, wink. Wiki then throws Henry Ford under the bus by claiming that he is directly responsible for funding some 500,000 printed copies that were then distributed throughout the United States in the 1920s. They will then tell you that Nazi Germany used the protocols as a school textbook for children, despite the fact that British Intel newspaper The Times debunked the document in 1921, essentially by saying, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. The ultimate irony here is that Henry Ford went on to become a 33-degree Freemason. If you're asking why the Scottish Rite would infer such a title upon the very individual who outed their partnership with Zionism, then just know that the automobile spook played his part, which is also precisely why the wiki sought to name him. Also, Hitler was an actor working for all the same people. We are only ever given the illusion of choice. Illuminati written history books and the Intel-run media are set up that way. Anyhow, where were we? Oh yes, the Second World War, or as my grandparents like to call it, the war. Zionism wanted their new world order, and therefore, they needed their communist state and their fascist Nazi state, and also their Federal Republic superpower all throwing it down in the ring at the same time while the Vatican remained suspiciously unsinged. The conflict arrived precisely on schedule. And now, here's something else to consider. The scientific discoveries which made such feats in science fiction possible did too. For example, the discovery of nuclear fission was made in 1938 by a couple of German chemists, Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann. Nuclear fission would demand a theoretical explanation, of course it would, which was offered by Lisa Meitner and her nephew Otto Frisch. I checked. Both Lisa Meitner and Otto Frisch were Jews. Remember when I told you how I'm willing to bet that anyone whom Albert Einstein thought to personally mention or admire was a way for other spooks to identify a who's who in the world of spookery? Lisa Meitner was praised by Einstein as the German Marie Curie. Oh dear, you have just apprehended and read a note being passed in class. Marie Curie was a spook, selected for her starring role, and that is to play the part of Madame Mercury. What Einstein is essentially telling everyone here is that Lisa Meitner had also won the audition for the next act in the performance. The explanation goes something like this. In the summer months of 1938, 
Hahn and Strassmann, while employed at the Kaiser Wilhelm Society for the Advancement of Science, an umbrella organization with connections to the Rockefellers, found that bombarding thurium with neutrons produced different isotopes. They furthermore claimed that the isotopes of barium could be formed by bombardment of uranium. It would take Meitner and Frisch in December of that year to work out the phenomenon of their described splitting process. In the report, published in the February issue of Nature in 1939, only two months after taking the task to hand, they gave it the name The Fission. From this report, we are told, a magazine article, mind you, Meitner and Frisch developed the very principle which led to the development of the first atomic bomb. Why would they publish their findings in a magazine? Because the development of the atomic bomb was always intended for public consumption. Another discoverer of science worth noting is Enrico Fermi, who won a Nobel in 1938 for physics. He has since been dubbed the architect of the nuclear age and the architect of the atomic bomb. We shall see why Fermi becomes important to the unfolding drama later on. The story goes that he built a reactor underneath the decrepit University of Chicago football stadium and, on December 2, 1942, achieved with his team a sustained chain reaction, right on schedule. With the Chicago Pile 1, as it is known, the super doomsday weapon was no longer just theory. Also, to rub the atomic bomb hoax in our faces, the official narrative claims that Fermi discovered physics by accident. This happened while browsing through his local Italian market, whereupon Fermi stumbled upon a 900-page Jesuit treatise on elementary mathematical physics. In Hollywood, they call this product placement. Intel is letting us know who some of their investors are. In the years following the war, Oppenheimer became a national spokesman for the sort of science which was emblematic of a new type of technocratic power, scientism. Guys in lab coats making international laws, telling us it is no longer our mind, our conscious, our body, our choice, but Big Brother. You don't become a national spokesman for science, religion, politics, his story, or anything unless you're either sitting at the writer's table or reading from the script. His solution, we needed a United Nations, as to ensure atomic detonation would never happen again. There it is. They're what is, you ask? Order ab chao. It's a Freemason motto and means order out of chaos. Our slave masters create the problem, encourage the reaction, as in something must be done about this, and then offer the solution. Oppenheimer was simply a mannequin, an actor. If Oppenheimer became a household name, and he most certainly did, it's only because spooks were whispering into the ears of children and parents alike as they sat around sticking a fork into their TV dinners, a task easily accomplished. For example, Oppenheimer was featured on the October 10th, 1949 edition of Life magazine. Assuming this isn't the first paper you've read on cosmology, then hopefully by now you know my thoughts on the matter. Life magazine is spook literature. Life wasn't simply how spooks passed notes in class. It was a rather glorious media outlet by which the masses were initiated into the PSYOP via weekly subscription. Were the atomic age a real thing, they could have dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and then left its origins as a profound mystery. The US government was under no obligation to explain its development to anyone. For the following several decades, 
religious leaders around the earth could have compared the judgment over Japan to the sulfur that rained down from the Hashemayim upon Sodom and Gomorrah. If you tell me that the U.S. government would never lie to us about the construction of a planet-destroying Death Star weapon and would therefore divulge everything for fact-checkers, then just know that I will point you to the destruction of Moscow in 1812 by a second identified sun, not to overlook the direct energy microwave weapon which burned Paradise, California down in 2018, both of which you can hear more about in my episode 1812 was a very strange year. Something I haven't written on yet is the destruction of San Francisco in 1906. Energy weapon. So much to do and so little time. Have they done so, that is, not told us of the atomic bomb development, then that would have negated the entire point of the deception because the objective was to pull the wool over everyone's eyes. Declassifying the Manhattan Project was necessary, you see, because its autobiography was the PSYOP. It's the very reason why NASA volunteered herself as the reader during storybook time in the 60s. In order to accept Buzz Aldrin's moon flag as something more akin to fact rather than fiction, America needed to be emotionally embroiled within the drama of NASA's decade-long journey, or rather, her race against the Soviet Union to the lunar surface and back. Russia did not contest America's arrival, nor did they make their own go at it, which tells us something. They were in on it, just like the bomb. Everyone's in on it, including Iran and North Korea. Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. The Manhattan Project was so secretive that, among its 130,000 employees, ridiculous, practically nobody knew what anybody else was working on, to the left or right, of his or her own cubicle. Whatever their task, whether they were clapping away on a typewriter or purifying uranium at Oak Ridge, Nobody had the faintest clue they were laboring to build a doomsday bomb. Only Oppenheimer remained omnipotent. There is good reason for that. Speaking of Albert Einstein as a method of identifying other spooks, you will find a picture of Oppenheimer sitting next to Einstein in 1947, courtesy of Life magazine. And now you know. You will tell me, the unprecedented secrecy was because of spies. Oh, there were spies all right. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were two of them, Jews, but they were also actors in the terrible blockbuster movie called McCarthyism. A few good men delivered the quip, you can't handle the truth, whereas McCarthyism gave us, have you no sense of decency? The real reason that nobody knew anything is for the exact same reason that hundreds of companies helped to build the Apollo spacecraft. NASA would contract a specific company for something so simple as a screw. Why, you ask? because NASA wasn't launching rockets into space. They were lifting rocket-shaped balloons. Such a claim will cause some, if not most of you, to tighten your lips and roll your eyes. Though I have undoubtedly just managed to whet the appetites of the few. They're balloons. They're balloons. And much like those Manhattan Project cubicle workers, everyone who contributed a fuel cell or a chirogenic gas storage, a service propulsion fuel and oxidizer tank, a screw or a mechanical timer and clock believe they were participating in something American, which is ultimately true, come to think of it. Let's put it this way. If the Manhattan Project was an enormous undertaking requiring over 100,000 employees who knew nothing of their contributions, it's because the PSYOP was given too little time before the script called upon its blockbuster sequel, The Cold War. McCarthyism was just a spinoff. 
As we shall come to see, the bomb was dropped only three weeks after Trinity was tested. Three weeks. The war was already over in Germany, and in Japan it was all but one. American pilots had been setting Japan's mainland ablaze unchecked weeks before Hiroshima. The Japanese were already setting ducks. In very little time, a handful of theoretical physicists needed to figure out how to produce an entirely new substance, plutonium, not to mention how to mine and enrich enough uranium to fuel a bomb. New instruments needed invented and fabricated in order to complement the new theories being produced. Scientists needed selected mathematical equations construed to secure their brand new atomic age theories and then calculations rechecked for the fact checkers. This is also precisely why the Manhattan Project was so quickly declassified, so as to sell us the illusion of its development. The official narrative has Fermi having escaped fascist Italy before building a nuclear reactor underneath a college football stadium, encouraging the US government to dig their heels into atomic research. The US government agreed with the physics professor. Sure, we'll go with that. The result, we are told, was the top secret Manhattan Project. After this milestone, funds were allocated more freely, and the project advanced at breakneck speed. Don't you love how it so often takes top secret projects to siphon off money? At any rate, it is not until June of 1942, we are told, when the U.S. Army established the Manhattan Project in order to handle its part in the atom bomb project and begin the process of transferring responsibility from the Office of Scientific Research and Development to the military. All that they're really saying here is that the United States Corporation shifted their PSYOP from one department to another. It is Lieutenant General Leslie Richard Groves who was appointed director of what became known as the Manhattan Project. Groves almost immediately selected Oppenheimer to head the project's secret weapons laboratory. To this effect, the Wikipedia adds, This was a choice that surprised many because Oppenheimer had left-wing political views and no record as a leader of large projects. Groves was concerned by the fact that Oppenheimer did not have a Nobel Prize and might not have had the prestige to direct fellow scientists. However, he was impressed by Oppenheimer's singular grasp of the practical aspects of designing and constructing an atomic bomb and by the breadth of his knowledge. The entire account reads off like a Hollywood movie, the underdog here being Oppenheimer. Reminds me of the plotline to Rocky, whereas Apollo Creed selects a local Philly fighter whom everyone believes is destined to fail. They are trying to sell this to us as organic, the results of human ingenuity, manifest destiny and all that. When in fact, Oppenheimer was selected for his occultist pedigree, probably groomed for his part long before the Manhattan Project was ever a thing. Knowing what we do now, that the official narrative is a script and all the world is a stage, Try to take the following quote seriously when the Wikipedia continues selling us on the biological legitimacy of Oppenheimer's appointment. As a military engineer, Groves knew that this would be vital in an interdisciplinary project that would involve not just physics, but chemistry, metallurgy, ordnance, and engineering. You see, Oppenheimer embodied all of those things. Continuing on. Groves also detected in Oppenheimer something that many others did not, an overweening ambition that Groves reckoned would supply the drive necessary to push the project to a successful conclusion. 
Isidore Rabi considered the appointment a real stroke of genius on the part of General Groves, who was not generally considered to be a genius. Why was General Groves put on the most important top-secret project of the war if he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed? Probably because he was a tool. This is the part in the movie where all the cards are laid out on the table, and the secondary main character beckons the audience to gasp at the big gamble. Groves places the bulk weight of his confidences, and in fact the fate of humanity, upon the protagonist, Oppenheimer, a poetry-quoting, womanizing oddfellow, too independent, unpredictably self-conscious, and cynical of authority for his own good, who will be used against everyone's better discretion and then, after wild barbaric success, turned out in the end. I've just described the Manhattan Project and so many movies that I cannot even begin to name them all. Isidore Rabi won a Nobel Prize in Physics in 1944 for his discovery of nuclear magnetic resonance. Also, I checked, Rabi was an Austrian-Hungarian-born Jew. The codename Trinity is a rather obvious allusion to alchemy. Don't believe me? Then I'd recommend listening to my last episode on Marie Curie, wherein we glean the following. The three primes of alchemy are mercury, salt, and sulfur, or the soul, the earth, and sun. It's a mystery religion thing. You know, the mysteries of Isis, the worship of the immortal soul, and all that. The most probable reason why White Sands, New Mexico was selected for the Trinity site is because White would tie Oppenheimer's operation alchemically to salt. When asked about its name in a later interview, Oppenheimer answered, There is a poem of John Donne, written just before his death, which I know and love, from its quotation, As west and east, in all flat maps, and I am one, are one, so death doth touch the resurrection. There is much to address in this small quote that it is difficult even knowing where to begin, but let's start with the girlfriend. Oppenheimer is likely alluding to, in coded terms, the bitterly melancholic and chronic depressant Jean Tatlock, a sometimes lover who had committed suicide only a few months before the test. On the day of her purported death, January 4th, 1944, Tatlock's phone was wiretapped. J. Edgar Hoover was listening in. Sure, let's go with that. Tatlock's father discovered her head submerged in the bathtub of her 1405 Montgomery Street home around 1 p.m., with a convenient suicide note. Of course he did. He then went about sifting through her correspondences, burning letters and photographs in the fireplace, before bothering to call the coroner at 5.10 p.m., some four hours later. Nothing at all suspicious about that. By the way, Gene Tatlock's father, J.S.P. Tatlock, was a professor at the time with UC Berkeley. So many intel psyops derived from Berkeley that it would take a book. If I have just now whet your appetite, then you can dig a little deeper into Berkeley with the Patty Hearst kidnapping hoax episode. The Wikipedia introduces Jean Francis Tatlock to us as an American psychiatrist and physician and a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. She was also a reporter and writer for the party's publication, Western Worker. As if Jean Tatlock wasn't enough of an intel project already, we further read that Tatlock struggled with her sexuality at one point writing to a friend that, quote, there was a period when I thought I was homosexual. I still am. 
in a way, forced to believe it. But really, logically, I am sure that I can't be because of my unmasculinity." Unquote. Apparently, Oppenheimer and Tatlock met in 1936 at a communist fundraiser for Spanish Republicans, which was held by Oppenheimer's communist landlady, Mary Ellen Washburn. Long story short, the daughter of a Berkeley professor introduced Oppenheimer to various communists, including Rudy Lambert and Thomas Addis. And after twice rejecting his proposals for marriage, the two continued their affair even after his marriage to card-carrying communist Catherine Kitty Puining in November of 1940. Another person introduced to Oppenheimer through Jean Tatlock was the metaphysical English poet John Donne via her medieval scholar father, hence the coded poem stated above. It has been conjectured that Oppenheimer first read Dunn only after his arrival to Los Alamos in 1943, and no doubt from a book which would have been handed to him by Tatlock. Why John Dunn? Because Dunn was a poetic alchemist. The poet's pen was concerned with man's spiritual transcendence in such manner that parallels the extraction of pure essences from any form of base matter. And besides, Dunn was the sort of poet who could see the whole world in a room, the cosmos within the individual, a single life inhabiting all of human history, as well as the apocalypse and the death of one man. In other words, Dunn could metaphorically split words the way Oppenheimer could split an atom. Though Dunn never once uses the phrase trinity, and remember, Oppenheimer credits the alchemist. In one poem, the poet quips, Batter my heart, three-personed God. Mercury, salt, and sulfur. Jean Tatlock's drowning has all the markings of an alchemical allegory and a hoax. Perhaps a gunshot sprint to the year of the rooster, which is a stand-in for Mercury. Uh-huh, Little Boy and the Fat Man were dropped over Japan during the alchemical year of Mercury, 1945. Or rather, the rooster. The next year of the rooster would fall on 1957. That is the occasion when Britain detonated her first hydrogen bomb and the US conducted her first underground nuclear test. Also, the space race began with the launch of Sputnik 1. The next year of the rooster would fall on 1969. So, Apollo 11. Do you see how this works? It's all alchemy. Tatlock's exit from the world stage sounds not so dissimilar from the death hoax of Kobe Bryant in January of 2020 which kickstarted the COVID-19 psychodrama in the year of the rat. The bathtub story may have in fact served as the signpost and an opening ceremony. In short, Trinity is Tatlock. The term gadget was a laboratory euphemism for a bomb. Little Boy and Fat Man were dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But at White Sands, the archaic hairball of an atomic age, tangled with a mesh of wires, was simply gadget. The gadget was an implosion-type plutonium device, which essentially means the plutonium is surrounded by explosives. The labyrinth of wires you see are attached to different explosives, which burn at different frequencies. The idea was that the explosions would compress the plutonium into a ball with an overcritical mass, which would then explode. This had to be timed down to the microsecond, which is also why we are told that all the wires are essentially the same length. We're talking about the atomic bomb and looking at a fraud. Standing next to Gadget in most pictures is Norris Edwin Bradbury, 
the person who replaced Oppenheimer as director of the Los Alamos Laboratory after his departure, and was directly responsible for assembling Gadget and Fat Man, both of which are described as a Y-1561 device, or the Mark III design, which is to say they were an implosion-type nuclear weapon with a solid plutonium core. We are told that two more Mark III models were detonated at Bikini Atoll in 1946, and that some 120 were produced between 1947 and 1949, at which time the Mark IV retired the Fat Man lineup. Notice Bradbury's height in comparison with Gadget. We are told the Gadget is not completely assembled yet. And now, let's turn to a picture of Fat Man. If you commit to your own image search in the Matrix, we only need to compare the height of the three men present to conclude there is no possible way the Gadget would fit within Fat Boy. That's a problem. But they are different bombs, you tell me. True, but they were built at the same time and by the same architects. Fat Man was already completed before Trinity and was smaller and simpler, complete with a more sleek design, whereas Gadget was a fly in the soup of atomic complexity. The first enriched uranium did not arrive at Los Alamos until June of 1944. You can't work on a uranium bomb without uranium. And remember, the first chain reaction fusion explosion was, up to that point, purely theoretical, more like theater. There is nothing simple about either weapon designs. The Manhattan Project enlisted top scientists from all over the world. We're talking Italy and Germany and Jews without a homeland. And as we've already established, both Gadget and Fat Man are the Mark III design. The first was detonated in New Mexico on July 16th, while the latter was detonated only 24 days afterwards on August 9th. Different sizes means they managed to theorize, invent, and then contract the production of different working parts for two separate bombs, one of which was tested as the Trinity event, but then never utilized again. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. In a future episode, we shall suddenly see the narrative change again, whereas the nuclear bomb needed to be tested dozens, if not hundreds of times over, assigning sandbanks in the Pacific to nuclear waste and forcing entire indigenous groups out of their homes. Meanwhile, Trinity was tested once and then completely different bombs were used, as designs go. The official narrative tells us that they had to bluff Japan into thinking they had any number of new fat men, when in fact, they had none. That's Intel's way of rubbing it in our faces, that the ultimate bluff is against everyone. They never had a nuclear bomb to begin with. You'd think, with all the theories being imagined, the loose and archaic numbers in need of a good crunching, and thingamajigs requiring their invention for two separate sized bombs, and in so little time, nobody would have the time to sit around playing with explosives in the desert. Regardless, the official narrative informs us that a 20-foot high wooden platform was constructed 800 yards to the southeast of Trinity Ground Zero, and with 81 tons of Composition B explosive having the power of 108 tons of TNT stacked upon it. The Wikipedia calls it the 100-ton test. It was done, we are told, as a so-called atom bomb rehearsal in preparation for Trinity. It is called the 100-ton test, but that is only to cover up the fact that 108 tons of TNT were offered up, not 100. I dare you to do a web search on 108. Go ahead, give it a try. 
Think about it, and we shall return to that ancient occult number in a moment. By now, you should be asking yourself how the 100-ton test could in any way be a rehearsal to the bomb when the so-called test was a conventional explosion and in no way nuclear. I have yet to receive a satisfactory answer because in terms of rehearsals, it isn't one. It's like buying a shotgun and then trying it out on the range with a bow and arrow or prepping for yoga class by taking a side trip through the drive-thru and eating fries and a cheeseburger, perhaps a milkshake to go with it. Nothing nuclear exploded on May 7th. All they managed to do was play with explosives and create a fireball explosion visible some 60 miles away at Alamogordo Army Airfield. Major Stan Shields thought the fireworks display looked beautiful. How adorable. Meanwhile, hardly any shock was felt at the base camp 10 miles away. We are only two months away from Trinity and what was accomplished? The answer again is nothing. The 100-ton test might as well be the New Mexico version of Operation Fortitude. Remember the Apollo 1 fire that killed astronauts Roger Chaffee, Virgin Grissom, and Ed White at Cape Kennedy? Only 30 seconds before all three went up in flames, Grossen protested their inability to make radio contact with the tower. And he said, We can't even talk between two buildings. How the heck are we supposed to get to the moon? Boom! Somebody named Vannevar Bush was present for the 100-ton test. Bush headed the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development. He was later chiefly responsible for the movement that led to the creation of the National Science Foundation. There is much attributed to his name, including the development of the analog computer. But what I wanted to know most is if Vannevar Bush is a Bush. We are not told. I decided to check anyways. Bush was a master mason. And now, back to the number 108. In yoga, the number 108 refers to spiritual completion. The heart chakra is said to have 100 nadi energy lines that converge to form this energy center. 108 is alchemical in that it is associated with transformation and love energy. And why pranayama, the practice of breath control in yoga, is often completed in cycles of 108. Sun salutations are often performed in nine rounds of all 12 postures. The math on that totals 108. The idea was that the yogic master could align himself with the rhythm of creation, ultimately bringing an end to one cycle of reincarnation. Even Buddhist rosaries have 108 beads. Many Buddhist temples exhibit 108 steps representing the path to enlightenment. And the list goes on from there. There's 108 temptations capable of tripping one from nirvana and 108 delusions. Tai Chi has 108 moves. You get the point. Within the Copernican universe, the distance between the earth and the sun is 108 times the diameter of the sun. Astrologers of the same rank maintain that an astrological age is the product of the earth's slow processional rotation and lasts for 2,160 years, which is 20 times 108. The Sarcene Circle on the Salisbury Plain is 108 feet in diameter. The five-pointed pentagram exhibits 108 degree angles in every direction. 108 is a magical number, but it gets better. It heads closer to home. Shiva has 108 names. The 100-ton test was a ceremony. You probably didn't arrive here expecting to dissect numbers, and yet here we are. I have a few more to throw at you. 
In as little as three weeks, precisely 21 days after Trinity, 80,000 Japanese civilians were murdered at Hiroshima, while a chosen few became ascended masters. Why 21? Because the number 21 in numerology is symbolic of success, completion, the fulfillment of desires, and victory. In Tarot, the world represents the number 21 and is the last card of the major arcana. Within the card, we see the emergence of a goddess who arrives victorious. It should also be noted that 3 is a prime number of 21, but you probably knew that already. What are we looking at here? Is it a runaway zit on the night before prom? No, it is not. We are reportedly staring at the first 11 seconds of the atomic age. Atomic age, AA, 1-1-11, a new beginning. The time we are told is 5.30 in the morning, at precisely the break of dawn, July 16, 1945. It is a faked photo. They're all either faked photos or fake stories given to us by Intel. You shall see partially why my claim concerning the photographs is true in a moment, though you will mostly have to wait for the following episode, when the fakes will be handed theirs and hacked appropriately into pieces. At any rate, it is July 16, 1945. We find ourselves at the height of the summer solstice. Alchemy again. Ernest Orlando Lawrence, a nuclear scientist who had earlier in 1939 won the Nobel Prize in Physics for the invention of the cyclotron, described the scene as one in which everything went from darkness to brilliant sunshine in an instant. Physicists present worried that the intense heat of the nuclear explosion would cause a chain reaction in the atmosphere. The idea is that atoms would fuse together and engulf the whole world in blazing light and flame or whatever. Hans Beth was a nuclear and theoretical physicist and a Jew who had personally been appointed by Oppenheimer to head up the T theoretical division as its highly coveted director. He had earlier made his name known in 1938 when he came up with the theory that fusion produces the enormous energy emitted by stars. In order to quench physicists' fears, Beth performed a few calculations on the back of an envelope and decided that everyone's fear was probably unfounded. Sure, this is the same guy who figured out how stars actually shone while the poets were just observing that they did. It's so romantic, it must be true. When Trinity detonated in the New Mexico desert on the morning of the 16th, Beth is reported to have commented, I am not a philosopher. Thank you for sharing. The physicist Richard Finman, another New York Jew who had been assigned to Beth's T division and performed the task of being a human computer, or something to that effect, recalled freakishly finding the frequency of a classical music station out of San Francisco just as the bomb detonated. The sonic blast and the blinding light of the bomb, he said, absorbed and therefore silenced the sound emitting from his radio. Enrico Fermi, whom we have earlier met as the architect of the nuclear age, afterwards reported, although I did not look directly towards the object, I have the impression that suddenly the countryside became brighter than in full daylight. I subsequently looked in the direction of the explosion through the dark glass and could see something that looked like a conglomeration of flames that promptly started rising. It was Oppenheimer's reaction, however, that would become synonymous with the Trinity Blast and the movie catchphrase when he said, If the radiance of a thousand suns were to burst at once into the sky, that would be like the splendor of the Mighty One. Now I am become death, 
the destroyer of worlds. We are talking about Shiva, the Elohim with 108 names. This is where the Trinity story takes a brief turn towards comedy, if only the sadistic murder of 100,000 Japanese civilians and a continued bold-faced lie over several decades didn't ruin a good laugh. The government's documented proof that Gadget was indeed a nuclear device is delivered in this one picture. Can you see it in your head? You are looking at their undeniable proof. The Wikipedia offers the following description. Major General Leslie Groves and Robert Oppenheimer at the Trinity Shot Tower remains a few weeks later. The white overshoes were to prevent the Trinitite fallout from sticking to the soles of their shoes. There is so much wrong with this picture, I don't even know where to begin. A few weeks later means both Hiroshima and Nagasaki have already been bombed. So they're still testing the first product, despite having already reworked the bomb for Japan. But that's not what I'm trying to get at here. A nuclear bomb had just exploded 100 feet above ground zero and they're wearing absolutely no protective clothing except for medical booties. Right. We are told that the nuclear explosion turned the asphalt and sand into green glass due to the fact that a nuclear bomb had instantaneously incinerated the desert in extreme temperatures so high that it would take the splitting of an atom. When I look at this photo, I see a parched desert floor. No bomb crater. Where's the glass? Where's the bomb crater? Is anyone remotely concerned about radiation? The man with the sunglasses and mustache on stage left looks suspicious. Why would you wear medical booties to protect you from sharp glass? The answer is, you wouldn't. Do me a favor and take a close look at Jack Abbey's picture of the event, which is described as the only well-exposed color photograph of the first detonation of a nuclear weapon on July 16, 1945 at the Trinity nuclear site in New Mexico. That's a big-ass explosion. Excuse my French, but how the hell is there no bomb crater? A mushroom cloud forms when the extreme heat of the fireball creates a powerful updraft, picking up dust, aka the bomb crater, and forms its iconic blossoming petals. So again, I ask, where's the bomb crater? Contrary to popular belief, the shape of a mushroom is not dependent upon its nuclear or thermonuclear component. Given enough TNT, a mushroom cloud will form. How would I know? I used to live in the Mojave Desert in a little navy town called China Lake. I felt the vibrations and then rushed outside to behold the mushroom cloud with my own eyes and on two separate occasions. Did I rush over the hill to inspect for bomb craters? No, I did not, as that would have landed me in government-sponsored accommodations. As further photographic evidence of Trinity, the Wikipedia offers a second picture, what looks to be a Polaroid, with the words after test scribbled below. Again, adorable. We are treated to a couple of unidentified guys standing around on a plot of land, looking more lost than anything, while the photographer appears to be a giant, probably a 30-footer. Nobody's wearing their medical booties. The shot is passed off to us as something scientific, as if they're attempting to document the moment, and yet nothing matches the photograph containing Groves and Oppenheimer. At least Groves and Oppenheimer were standing around trying to look important. This just looks like a vacation photo. Perhaps it is the depression. 
and we are witnessing two guys build a highway for the PWA. Where is the scorched earth? Where is the glass? That's no bomb crater. There are thick lines etched into the purported bullseye, ground zero. And is that a pileup of sand? I'm pretty sure that's a pileup of sand. If that's not a giant taking their picture, then he's probably standing on an excavator. Today, an obelisk stands erect as the lasting memorial to Oppenheimer's alchemical exercise and patches of grass. For all of you newbies out there, an obelisk is a penis. Hopefully, you weren't drinking coffee while listening to that, because I would have spit it out all over the keyboard and screen. Specifically, we are looking at Osiris's penis, though the Trinity site in New Mexico isn't nearly so impressive as the Nimrod penis they have in Washington. Or is it Osiris? There are, in fact, several egotistical godmen who have claimed the penis we take our family photographs around as their own. Fun fact, the Babylonian trinity consisted of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. Perhaps the most noted trinity of Egypt embodies Osiris, Isis, and Horus. A penis can be found in every telling. I've said this repeatedly over the years, and at the threat of boring you, I'll say it again. The points of alchemy, as well as the hieroglyphic packaging behind every trinity here mentioned, is to transmute the nature of the mortal soul into something immortal, which is to say, divine. Like the Copernican Revolution, the atomic bomb was the ultimate exoteric expression of an age-old esoteric pursuit, sun worship. Months later, after some 120,000 Japanese civilians were murdered in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, with thousands more dying in grotesque and excruciating pain, and still thousands more left permanently handicapped, Oppenheimer told President Harry Truman that blood was on his hands. Truman angrily responded, The blood is on my hands. Let me worry about that. He then kicked him out of the Oval Office and told an advisor that he never wanted to see that theoretical physicist again. Why do we know any of this? Because we are reading a story being passed off to us as the real thing. Remember how Oppenheimer was instrumental in arguing for the justified existence of the United Nations? Ordo ab chao. Well, after the war, Hans Beth, the theoretical physicist who calmed everyone's fear by performing calculations on the back of an envelope, went on to play an important role in the development of the hydrogen bomb. Beth later campaigned with Albert Einstein, wink wink, against nuclear testing and the nuclear arms race, eventually persuading Kennedy to sign the 1963 Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty and Nixon the 1972 Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, SALT-1. There it is again, SALT. On June 7, 1949, four months before arriving on the cover of Life magazine, Oppenheimer and his wife Jackie testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee and admitted that they had indeed been card-carrying members of the Communist Party. Ridiculous. Joseph McCarthy provided enough actors playing the part of communist, by which Oppenheimer was apparently one of them, to the point that Americans were finding communists in their own pantry. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were a nice tie-in. In the summer of 1944, Ethel's brother, David Greenglass, was assigned to Oak Ridge, and then in a few short weeks, Los Alamos, where he worked on implosion as a member of the Special Engineering Detachment. The Army machinist used his wife, Ruth, 
as the conduit by which information regarding the atomic bomb might be funneled to his brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg, who then turned it over to Soviet intelligence. Oh dear, it's all psychodrama. Good storytelling? Sure, but still psychodrama. While playing the part of the anti-hero, Oppenheimer was subsequently fired from his University of Minnesota position. Oppenheimer was also nominated for the Nobel Prize for Physics on three separate occasions, in 1946, 1951, and 1967 respectively, but lost every time. Bummer. America's favorite Nazi, Warner Von Braun, then NASA director and part-time Disney employee, or Disneyland television spokesman or whatever, summed up his own opinion on the matter with a quip to a congressional committee. In England, Oppenheimer would have been knighted. If only MI6 had been scripted for the part. Starting in 1954, Oppenheimer lived for several months of each year on the island of St. John in the U.S. Virgin Islands. By 1957, he had settled into a two-acre tract of land on Gibney Beach, where he built a Spartan home. One can only wonder if Gene Tatlock joined him.